Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. In this episode, I speak with Maryland Senator Antonio Hayes, who represents Baltimore. We talked about some of his legislative successes this past session, including passing and overriding the governor's veto to create paid family and medical leave, an issue that's personal to him, as well as addressing home appraisal bias, which too often hinders homeowners of color from building wealth equitably. We also talked about his role as newly named co-chair of a coordinated campaign for what is a historic election in Maryland, why he's optimistic Democrats will do well in November, and how his great-grandmother inspired him to pursue a career in public service. Enjoy. All right, Senator Antonio Hayes, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you for having me. It's so great to talk to you. I'm excited to talk about all kinds of things, policy, politics, but thought I would maybe start with just a little bit about what some of the work you did this last legislative session. You had a lot on your plate and had some great wins. I just wanted to highlight, maybe starting with the Time to Care Act, which you helped pass, a Paid Family Medical Leave Act, which you co-sponsored. And you had to ride, as I understand it, override as a, the governor's veto, as I understand it. So let's love to kind of hear how you came about to sponsor that bill and why that was a priority for you. Absolutely. So this was the third year that I've introduced the Time to Care Act which is often referred to as paid family leave. And, you know, kudos to those who led the way before me, my vice chairman, Senator Brian Feldman and Delegate Ariana Kelly, years before, you know, I was brought on board to shepherd and champion this legislation. They had been working in work groups and other things to bring it about. But for the last three years, we've been trying to put Maryland in line with most industrialized nations and making sure that we afforded time for families to spend time as caregivers or for the birth of a newborn. And this year, I actually experienced both, right? So one of the reasons why this legislation came to me, because as a child from like my early years in school until I graduated from college, my grandmother actually took on the responsibility to raise me. Mm. And years later, she had to come to Alzheimer's. And so I began to be her caregiver along with two other relatives. And so I understand what it means to families that need to take off work to care, you know, the caregive for someone that they care deeply about. And then this year, my wife, Jenny, and I welcomed our brand new baby boy, who's now six months. I do not advise anyone to have a child, especially their first child in the middle of a legislative session. (laughs) But, you know, we were daring to do so and are happy as a result of it. But essentially, like I said, this was a three-year labor to make sure that families didn't have to choose between working 
or taking time off and caring for their loved ones. Yeah, well, congratulations. And I'm going to share with our listeners that I got just a sneak peek of that six-month-old before we got on the air here, and he's a cutie pie. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry about your grandmother. That's such a hard situation. But were you surprised at the, at the veto, or was that expected? No, actually, for the last eight years in Maryland, we have uh, overwhelmingly Democratic-controlled legislature. And for the last eight years, as we pass legislation as a legislature, it's been not as much as if we could get a majority, but can we get a large enough majority to override the governor's veto as he has vetoed many of the, you know, most important pieces of legislation to our constituencies back home. And so he vetoed this legislation along with some other great pieces of legislation from some of my colleagues, and we immediately overrode his veto. Yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, congratulations. And I think this is such an important issue that so many of our leaders across the country are working on. So it just the makes sense. The other thing about this is this is an election year for us, right? Sure. So typically those things where they're kind of divisive, especially among parties and there's not, you know, overwhelming like groundswell, it's, you know, you don't think you could get these things, you know, passed in election year. And I think one of the things that motivated me was, you know, people was saying because this is election year, we shouldn't even be introducing this legislation. And knowing what this means for, you know, my family and so many Maryland families and families around the country, you know, I was up to the challenge. I think, you know, whether election year or not, I think the economic impact and just the bonds that are formed with families having time to spend together was more valuable than, you know, using as a political football. So I'm grateful to work with, you know, and, and I acknowledge those who work before me, but, you know, it definitely could not have been possible with a huge, huge number of advocates from organized labor to other groups that work with families. And so we're happy this year we were able to successfully get that passed. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to come back shortly to politics because you do have a big election year there in Maryland. But I did want to flag one other issue that I read about that I just thought was interesting. And I'm hearing more and more about it. And I'm also curious about how this one came about for you, which was the work you were doing on addressing home appraisal bias. Yeah. Which I understand came from a news coverage of some of the things that were happening. Tell us about that and where that stands now. Right. So last year, so not actually this session, but in 2021, you know, I've been trying to do a lot of stuff around, you know, wealth building, especially in, you know, communities of color, specifically the African-American community. And last year, you know, working with some nonprofit affordable housing, you know, experts, I realized that both the feds and the state um, really incentivize affordable housing through rental housing, right? And at the time when I was contemplating this legislation, the federal government was contemplating as a part of the large infrastructure package to have a tax credit to incentivize affordable home ownership, which we all know home ownership is probably one of the most significant assets that any family has here in the United States. And so I thought with you know the possibility of this tax credit being passed, which it didn't pass, but I think the Fed, you know, the Congress is still going to be contemplated in future sessions. But in anticipation of this, I figured that we would incentivize it even more at a state level. And so I passed a piece of legislation called the Appraisal Gap for Historically Redlined Communities. From you know, many that are familiar with the term redlining that swept throughout our country, it actually started here in the city of Baltimore, where I'm from and where I represent. 
And still, we still see the outcomes and effects that redlining has had and devastated so many historically Black communities throughout Baltimore, as we still have a lot of existing vacant homes and such. And so the appraisal gap bill was essentially to close the gap, whereas the state, especially given the surplus we have, thanks to our friends in the Democratic Congress, was that the state would subsidize a portion of the construction costs, therefore making it more advantageous to invest in some of the vacant homes that are otherwise hard to renovate and put up for sale. We passed that legislation. We were not successful at getting the governor to put some money to it, but in some of the research I found that, you know, there's a lot of bias in the appraisal process, period. This year, the governor actually came with a bill to renew the authority of the current appraisal board, whereas if you have a complaint or you want to appeal an appraisal, he wanted to extend the sunset because otherwise, without an affirmative action by the legislature, the appeal board goes away. And I saw this as an opportunity, not just to renew the board, but also evaluate the work that they have done. And looking at that, they've, you know, over the years, they've had thousands and thousands of complaints. I believe in 2021, they had two of them that were complaints about racial bias. Both of those were unfounded. And so, you know, as we've seen by a recent news article here in Baltimore City with a Johns Hopkins professor, as well as a Prince George's County resident, you know, in another part of the state, that there are examples where people of color have experienced, you know, bias in their appraisals. And so this year, when the governor introduced this very simple bill to extend, extend the sunset, we tacked a big amendment on there calling for independent study of the review commission because the national organization that oversee appraisers have done a lot of work around DEI. Mm. And I wanted to be certain that here in Maryland, that we were applying some of those best practices that they have recommended to states here in Maryland. So we worked on that and hopefully we will have some results of that evaluation pretty soon leading into this next legislative session. That's so great. And I mean, just to explain for people who, I mean, obviously to say the obvious, but essentially if you go in and your houses, you're talking about creating wealth in these, you know, from through homeownership, if you go in and you, you know, have the same house as somebody down the street, but you, you know, are a black couple or whatever it is, and your house is all of a sudden worth by the appraisal $200,000 less or whatever it is for no really reasonable reason, right? That's kind of what you're trying to make sure doesn't happen so that that, that equity is there and that that wealth is created, as you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And what we heard in these news articles, you know, both of which were undervalued at more than $300,000. Wow. And there's this phenomenal in many Black communities. And, and I think in the one case that was highlighted in the news was the Black family actually had a white family um, photos and all of that other stuff. And they realized a higher value in their appraisal in their same house. It's just they weren't there and there was no sign that, you know, people of color actually lived there. And so just obvious signs of, you know, the bias and devaluation of their property. And so hopefully as we bring more attention to this and as, you know, states dig into, you know, what's actually taking place, you know, one of the things that we've also learned that only 1% of the appraisers, and I believe it's similar nationwide, but less than 1% of our appraisers are people of color, mm -hmm. right? And so we also have a pipeline issue and who's actually 
you know, conducting these appraisals. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you, as I said, you framed this, I think rightfully as a wealth creation issue. It's also an equity issue. And that's, I know that's an issue that you've worked a lot on. Something that we've had you speak about at New Deal events has been the health equity zones. I wonder if you could just briefly kind of tell people what that work has been about. Absolutely. So I've just finishing up my first term in the Maryland State Senate. Prior to this, I served in the House of Delegates. And so I've done a lot of work in healthcare. And we know in our healthcare system, there's a lot of disparities. And so what we work with a bunch of advocates on was creating these health equity resource communities, whereas we identify certain geographic areas where they had huge disparities in health as it relates to like chronic disease and other things. And we partner with an established organization like a healthcare organization, but also grassroots on the ground individuals and stakeholders to work with those communities that had low health outcomes and, you know, and improve, you know, the conditions around chronic disease and other things. And so we were able to pass that legislation last year. We allocated about $15 million each year over the next three to four years. And we are hoping that we will see dramatic decreases in the health disparities that exist in many of these neighborhoods, especially you know, around the area of chronic disease. Yeah, that's so wonderful. So before you ran for office, you had a pretty long career in public service, right? You know, you were a community organizer, you worked in the, for the Baltimore City Council, and then in the mayor's office. I'm just kind of curious, you know, now if some of the same work that you, I know public safety was a big issue that you worked a lot on in some of those previous jobs. Just kind of curious about what your experience has been of kind of going from, you know, a staff person, essentially, right? You know, in a community, but in the, right in the neighborhoods, working with, with the neighborhoods, and then, you know, flipping over to being elected representative. What's that change been, what has that kind of difference been? Or what have you learned from one that you brought to the other? Yeah, I'll tell you, being a staffer, I think better prepared me to be a better legislator, right? I first ran for the House of Delegates when I was, in 2006, I was like 28 years old. I had just graduated from college. Actually, I just finished interning in the legislature right before I graduated from college. I had worked for the Democratic Party as their political director, and then I ran for office. Now, you know, it was a little painful at the time. I lost that election by 80 votes. You know, I didn't raise much money. I didn't really have an organization. Fast forward 10 years later, after having, you know, I continued to do the work of organizing in community, and then that parlayed into a little bit of political organizing. And I worked for the city council president and the mayor. So 10 years later, I gave it another try. And so I think, you know, with the experience that I had at, you know, working as a staffer in the state legislature, working as a staffer at the local level, it really prepared me. But I think, you know, after working both in state government as well as local government as a staffer, fast forward to 2014. So 2014, when I decided, by the way, by the time 2014 came around, I had no plans or ever running for office again, right? So after I lost that race in 2006, I, you know, went back to work with other elected officials. And then my focus really turned to something that, you know, to like my community organizing route. So I started mentoring young men in the community and I thought that I would never, you know, run for office again. And, you know, the opportunity came after redistricting where 
I had moved out of the district, moved completely out of the district because I had no plans on ever running for office again. And when they redistricted, they drew the lines from my old district down to where I had moved to in downtown. So my old district had never come into downtown, but they redrew the lines right to where I moved to. And, I, you know, I, I kind of saw that as a sign. And so I answered the call and, you know, I ran in that election and thankfully was successful at, you know, securing a seat in the House. And I served one term there and then I went on to serve in the state Senate. Yeah. You know, I, when I was reading your, I think, I think this is from your website, but I'm not sure, but you'd mentioned your grandmother earlier and being raised by your grandma. And you made a reference to your grandma being a reason that you pursued a career in public service. What did she do that made kind of inspired you to take this path? Yeah, no, a lot of times that, you know, especially when I'm talking to young people, they always ask me, you know, am I from a political family? You know, I don't consider my family political because we never worked in politics in the sense of like the politics that I'm engaged in today as an elected official. But I did observe my grandmother. And at that time, it was my great grandmother who used to volunteer in a church and, you know, cook meals after church. She also used to help a lot of seniors in a neighborhood get back and forth to school. And so I think I gained kind of like that appreciation from public service by watching her being engaged in the communities in which we lived. I think it's so important that, that we instill those we're just talking about your children, my children, we instill those values of public service and giving back, right, to our kids. I think it's just, and I love that that happened for you and look look where you are now. You've mentioned politics a couple times, so we got to talk politics. Maryland has a big year coming up in November, right? You've got your governor's race, of course, and you were a very early supporter of Westmore, I know. And so you were, I think, recently appointed as one of the co-chairs of the state party's coordinated campaign. For people who don't know what that means, what, is the, what are you going to be doing between now and November with that hat on? So essentially, at the conclusion of the primary election, going into the general election, the Maryland Democratic Party, in our case, coordinates all of the Democratic nominees and really organize a campaign around the Democratic nominees to have a successful Democratic ticket running in the general election. And this year, historic in that this is the first time in more than 100 years where every state constitutional statewide office in Maryland is all up for election, right? So there's vacancies in all three seats. In Maryland, our three constitutional statewide offices are the office of the governor, the office of the attorney general, and the office of the comptroller. And so not only is this election historic in the way that we've, in more than 100 years, we've never had all three of these positions up, We also have a pretty diverse and inclusive group of candidates that are serving as our Democratic nominees should the top three all get elected. For the first time in Maryland, we will elect the first African-American in Westmore to be the governor here in our state, being only the third African-American governor elected in his own right in the history of our country. If Brooke Learman, who I came into the legislature with in 2014, is elected comptroller. She will serve as the first female comptroller that Maryland has ever experienced in its history. And, you know, I've worked with Brooke. You know, like I said, we came into the legislature together. She is a phenomenal leader. And so I'm looking forward to that leadership 
And lastly, you know, in our attorney general, if Anthony Brown, who former congressman, former lieutenant governor is elected, he'll be the first African-American elected to be attorney general for our state. And so whichever way you look at it, this is a very, very historic election. It's an important election. As I alluded to earlier, Maryland enjoys a very democratic legislature. But in Maryland, although we have a significant democratic legislature, the governor's office has been Republican for the last eight years. And so there has been challenges in getting a lot of policy passed, whereas, you know, we couldn't just look at the majority, but had to have an overwhelming veto majority in order to get things passed. I'm excited about the caliber of leadership that we have as a Democratic ticket. And so part of my role is making sure that we have the infrastructure and the resources we need to make sure that our ticket is successful come this November in the general election. Yeah, I, I have to give a shout out to Brooke in particular, who is also a New Deal leader. So that's yes, <laughs> we're yes. super excited about Brooke and and both uh, former Congressman Brown and and Wes Moore have been good friends to the New Deal. So I'm excited about your ticket as well. I'm just but now I mean she's one of the hardest working people I know. Like she, you know, proud mother, you know, and but the amount of work that she contributes in public service is phenomenal. And then we have our. You know, I did a lot of talking about our main three constitutional races, but as well in our coordinated campaign, we also have our congressional races as well as Senator Van Hollen is up for re-election as one of our U.S. senators. So we have a dynamic group of individuals. Yeah, and it is. It's the historic. Thanks for kind of pointing out the historic nature. And also just it's it's interesting because I think Maryland, I think people think of Maryland as such a blue state, right? A pretty solidly blue state. But you're right to remind people that you've had this Republican governor and it's, you know, changes the way you legislate there, of course, with this veto-proof majority you need to have. So super interesting. I'm wondering if maybe you could just share with us as we are, you know, all eyes across the country are kind of turning to the general election after we just got through kind of the last primaries. What do you think some of the big issues are that are on voters' minds in Maryland that maybe might be instructive to other folks around the country? Yeah, no, I think, you know, of course, in Maryland, a big issue for us is education. Also, you know, for us here in Maryland, you know, a lot of concerns around healthcare and, and the economy and other things. But education for us is a big one. And I think that's one of the reasons why our Democratic ticket will be successful, because here in Maryland, we passed a historic piece of legislation called the Blueprint for Maryland's Future, where it provides millions of dollars in reform in our public education system over the last couple of years. For a while now here in Maryland, we really diverted away from opportunities to learn like the technical trades. We put a lot of emphasis on individuals going to four-year institutions. But we recognize that many of the opportunities for employment that pay a significant wage where you could help support your family, they are, you know, jobs that, you know, require some type of skilled trade. And so providing those opportunities in our K through 12 schools, but also providing more opportunities as it relates, you know, behavioral health is an issue that affects our young people that we need to work on as well as you know, some of the special education students that we have, a lot of our students need remedial education and we need the right supports that wrap around these young people as they're being educated in order 
to be successful. And so I'm excited about the opportunities that the Blueprint provide. We also, you know, just like in the pandemic really didn't do us any favors as it relates to the pipeline for individuals that inspire to be educators, you know, but we have an opportunity with the Blueprint to raise the wages of many of our, you know, education professionals to attract more people to the profession, which is long overdue. And so there's a lot of stuff baked in there. I could go on and on about the opportunities that the Blueprint will create. But I think that's why our ticket is resonating with so many Marylanders, because one of the biggest issues is really around, you know, the education opportunities that Marylanders care about. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Maybe I'll finish on a final question. You are a native Baltimorean. Is that what we say? Right? Oh my gosh. Yeah, we have a slight of a Baltimore accent. So we say Baltimore. Baltimore. Okay. All right. All right. I got got the word, but not the accent (laughs) down. Fair enough. We've been asking people a question to end these with that I've been liking, which is, uh, you know, if we have 24 hours to come visit you in Baltimore, any hot spots not to be missed, things we should be seeing in Baltimore? Oh, man, absolutely. So, you know, I am a big fan of my legislative district. I say that I represent a microcosm of all the great things that Baltimore shall offer. And so I probably represent here in Baltimore 85 to 90 percent of the culture and arts institutions. So I represent everything from the Walters Art Gallery to the Baltimore Museum of Art. Walters is more classic art. BMA is more contemporary art. I also represent the Hippodrome Theater, where you can see some of the best Broadway shows. We just had Hamilton here not too long ago. I also represent the world's famous BSL, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, which you know just celebrated their anniversary last week. We have a brand new conductor, the first time we've had a conductor of color um, serve the orchestra there. And so lots and lots of great things. And if you're a foodie, We have great areas to choose from. In my district, we have great places like Hamden and Mount Vernon and Pigtown and other parts of the city of Baltimore. You have great places like, you know, Harbor East and Fells Point. In Baltimore, we have a lot of ethnic communities, like we have Little Italy and Greektown, where you could get, you know, all types of cuisine. But if you're a foodie, Definitely Baltimore is the place to be. There's lots to see and lots to participate in, you know, so come visit us. <laughs> Wonderful. You're a good spokesperson for Baltimore. Well, you're going to have a lot more tourists after this podcast airs. <laughs> well, Senator, thanks so much for being with me, for talking so much about some of the great work you're doing. And we'll certainly be keeping our eyes on Maryland as come November and see if we can get some of those historic wins. So thank you for uh, taking the time today. Appreciate it. Indeed. Thank you. And thank you for New Deal uh, for this opportunity. It's amazing. And, you know, I'm a new New Dealer and the experience thus far have been awesome. And so I'm glad to be a part of this. Thank you so much. We're so happy to have you. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.